Welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Welcome back, devotees. This week we have Justin from the Obscura True Crime podcast. And hello. We're going to be telling each other some pretty, probably dark stories. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to get very dark. So grab a cocktail if you're at work. Um, don't show anyone that you're grabbing a cocktail. Heather was encouraging everyone last week. So it's up to you. Put it in your travel mug. Yeah, if you're going to grab a cocktail, you know, maybe uh, don't show the boss. Probably pick something that doesn't have a strong <laughs> smell, you know, or at least a distinct smell. Um, so I'm going to go first. Justin, <laughs> have you ever heard? Okay. Have you heard of John Aykroyd? No, I have not. You're in for disappointment in the system <laughs> and rage. Just lots of it. <laughs> I'm ready to be disappointed. <laughs> because of a lot of the themes in this, um, I'm pulling from, it's called Ghosts of Highway 20. It's put on by the Oregonian, and I'm going to share that as well. Um, and they really suggest, an, as do I, um, because if you've experienced sexual violence and need support, uh, contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. So if this is triggering to you, don't listen. This is like it's it gets bad in some points. Um, and specifically, I want to thank the author, Noelle Crombie, because she spent over two years doing research and reaching out to people um to get this story out there and she did an amazing five-part series which included many like basically a documentary style uh film on youtube which i'll be sharing um and it made me angry it broke my heart and made me cry which is really hard to do so i suggest going and supporting the oregonian they did amazing work we're gonna follow this crime by actually the victims so we're not gonna focus on this asshole. So you might want to put that uh, warning, that uh, trigger warning, pretty much on like the entire episode, you know, not to spoil what comes later, but you know. Yeah. On pretty much the entire episode. <laughs> just underneath yeah, just the giant absolutely. flashing red trigger warning. Um, okay. So the first victim was Marlene Gabrielson and she was, her attack site was in the sisters. So for those of you who've never driven in Oregon, have you, Justin? No, I have not. Highway 20 basically follows the length of Oregon in the middle. So it goes from Newport all the way out to the edge of Idaho, I believe. I don't believe I've driven along that road, but I've driven many roads like it. It is very rural. It is windy in the mountains, and it can be very isolating. It's like a two-lane highway. So in 1977, Marlene... Um, hadn't had just had a baby three months before and in late spring her and her husband planned to spend the night at sister's rodeo so she got all dressed up and i think this is like very key uh she you know you put it on your clothes and she was wearing her buckskin boots that her husband bought her even though the couple couldn't afford them so they're not a wealthy couple um she it is a native american from alaska which kind of, when you see what happens, explains a little bit and causes rage. Um, yeah. So they drove 90 miles from their home in Lebanon and set up camp at the at the rodeo grounds, drinking beer, having fun with their friends. They, Her and her husband disagreed 
because he wanted to head off with a couple of friends. She did not. She was only 20 at that point, and she was like, you know what? I want to go home to my baby. She's only three months old. I'm going to go home. However, it's around midnight in rural Oregon, so dark, not a lot of people around. So she's looking for a ride back, and she doesn't manage to find one on the road because she's planning to hitchhike. But when she returns to the campground, a stranger said that his buddy, John Aykroyd, could give her a ride because they were going out. So she's like, okay, yeah, I'll hop in. You know, it's the 70s. People hitchhike. Yeah, absolutely. They do. Um, so they go on. Aykroyd drops off his passenger. Marlene kind of notices that he has to reach through the open oh, window and unlatch the door from the outside. He then rolls up the window oh, and man. shuts the door. Yeah, there's no way to exit the car from the inside. Yeah. So then Marlene's alone with Aykroyd, who she said a big man who reeked of sweat and freshly cut wood, and she falls asleep. Again, not the best idea, but she's 20 year old, years old, just had a baby, and has been drinking. So, you know, she's tired. However, an hour into the drive, Aykroyd has turned off the highway and onto an old wagon road. And let me tell you, these roads are everywhere. Like, even now, there's old logging roads and stuff like that that just pull off. You don't know where they go. It's creepy. Marlene is awoken by um, someone grabbing her legs as she's dragged out of the truck. Again, not how you want to be woken up. And then she feels Aykroyd's blade hunting knife against her neck. He tells her, quote, you're going to do what I tell you, end quote. He then rips her jeans off with such force that her pants split from the waist to the ankle along the inseam. He slices off her boots, the very ones that they couldn't afford, her underwear, and threw her to the ground. So now she's naked in the woods. He rapes her repeatedly. Afterwards, he cleans off his knife on his uh, jeans, and he glanced, he glanced around the dark woods saying, quote, I'm not sure what to do with you. And and she responds, you could take me home. He he doesn't know if he's sure if he wants to do that. And she says, quote, I have a baby that's not even a year old. Please take me home, end quote. So she convinces him to take her home. He gives her a dirty pair of plaid pants. Because remember, he's torn all of her clothing, either by force or with a knife. That's horrifying. I know. And the documentary has her telling her story in her own words. And it breaks your heart. So... This. Aykroyd has the audacity to stop at the house that he shared with his mother in Sweet Home because he needed a soda and to use the bathroom. I know. Um, Marlene is petrified in the truck. She, in in the words of her in the documentary, I held everything in because I wanted to get him. I wanted the police to get him. So he returns. Um, she's like, uh, can I get your phone number? You know, maybe we can see. And he, he goes, maybe we can see each other again. She wants the phone number to be like, this is the man who did it. You know, hand her rape case to the police wrapped up in a bow. He drops her off in front of her mother-in-law's house in Lebanon. And as soon as she gets out of the car, he drives off. She is banging on the door. She looks uh, horrible. You know, she's been raped in the woods. Not great. Um, she forces her mother-in-law to call the police. So they go and they do the rape kit and everything. Aykroyd goes and tells the police that Marlene had seduced him in the front seat of a, of his dirty truck. He gave her a pair of pants because she tore hers while taking them off. I don't know any woman who's torn her pants from, like, with your inseam. No, oh my, that, that's absurd. 
Oh my god, yeah. So, the other man who was in the car that night said, Ackroyd is not the violent type, and she was drunk. Good to know. Thanks. Um, so, she handed over her clothes in the hospital. They had noted that she had scratches on her back. The doctor noted the bruising on her back, legs, and knees. Police still don't believe her, so they both agree to be polygraphed, because we all know that's great. They both... He passes, so they ask... And they go to ask her questions like, Did you tell the truth about being raped? Did you feel she'd been raped? Was there a question you fear she feared to answer? You can't see my face right now, but it's angry and judging a lot. And Justin, do you want to guess the sergeant's conclusion? Well, considering they made the documentary, I'm going to assume that he concluded that she wasn't raped. Yes, with no explanation. Meanwhile, Ackroyd's questions were, Did the girl ask you to pull over and have some fun? He said yes. Did you force her to have sex at knife point? Did you have a knife in your hand when you had sex? Did you tear off your her bra? He answered no. And the lie detector concurred with him. So, and the d- district attorney, I love this. A single handwritten sentence said, Ackroyd would face no charges. And you know, this is, uh, this is really not that uncommon for a case in which the local police form, uh, force uh, sees the victim as a lesser victim. Because, you know, I I recently did an episode on Brandon Tina, and in that case, the way they questioned him was absolutely horrifying. It was absolutely horrifying, and all because they saw the victim as like a a lesser victim and uh, the rapist in this case as a good old boy. And it sounds like kind of a similar uh, situation to what you're talking about. Yeah, she's lesser than because she's native she's a woman she was drunk and you're just sitting there like are you kidding me that was in 77 Ackroyd has no charges he works for the oregon uh highway patrol so he works for um our department of transportation so odot just remember this because he his route is on highway 20 so the next year we're going to talk about Kay turner in 1978 so It's Christmas Eve day, and she steps out. She had just gotten into that year into running marathons. She loves running. It's 8 a.m. in Camp Sherman, Oregon, along Highway 20. She planned an eight-mile run. Oh, my God. Kill me before I (laughs) do an eight-mile run. But she planned to be back in an hour in time for breakfast. God bless her. If I did an eight-mile run, you'd have to look for me because I would probably (laughs) be, like, walking. Her and her husband, Noel, had joined their friends for the holidays at Camp Sherman. She had been running a little bit when a a highway worker, Thomas Hanna, had spotted her running south alone. And he was returning to Camp Sherman after working the night shift. He passes then another highway worker, John Aykroyd. Somewhat a theme you would say. By 10 a.m., remember she left at 8.15, Kay hadn't returned. Her husband starts looking for her, their friends start looking for her, they panic and call the police. Well, our good friend Ackroyd's name comes up early because that the other highway worker, Hannah, said, I had seen him that morning. Justin, you want to guess what uh, Ackroyd says to the police? That he wasn't there? He wasn't that blatantly lying. Um, And mind you, this is two weeks later. He doesn't volunteer this. I figured he'd just try for anything considering, you know, the last time. Uh, He goes, I did come uh, across her, but I didn't go to the police, you know, because I just drove past her. He'd only been working uh, for the highway department for a year. He was 29. He 
basically was the young, uh, the middle child of three. In, in school, he earned low grades. His high school diploma was marked special education. He was a loner who was bullied and beaten by classmates. This doesn't excuse him because there are people who are bullied and beaten. Don't murder. That's a key thing. Don't. Absolutely. That's one of those. That's one of those excuses you see come up a lot in true crime. Uh, there's a lot of cases where somebody has this grand excuse for why they're horrible people. And it's like a good majority of us go through a lot and not all of us end up killers and rapists. So because he was accused of a felony theft as a team, he was like, I'm going to go into the army because that solves everything. And was stationed in Korea, Thailand and Germany, where he learned to be a mechanic. Um, He was not great in the army. Um, They investigated him for selling marijuana and going AWOL, and he was caught trying to steal equipment and supplies. So he's always been a gem of a human being. They even said he, early on, he showed signs of a disturbed mind. Justin, do you want to guess which part of the McDonald triad he showed? We got, we got the, the head, was it head injury, bedwetting, cruelty to animals? Uh, let me think here. Cruelty to animals. If I had to guess. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. So an acquaintance told a detective how he once watched in horror as Ackroyd, as a a child or young man, hacked up puppies using a machete, saying the dogs were his and no one else could have them. He is a horrible person. Oh, my God. So he returns from Korea in the army. He got a state job at ODOT. He got positive reviews, even though they noticed his occasional laziness and frequent time requested off so he he goes and tells the detectives after he's asked about it he said he was based in Satham junk datium junction about 25 miles from camp sherman which out there it's decent but you gotta have a reason to go do things because let me tell you you're gonna go get gas you gotta make sure you have a purpose you're gonna like be like go get gas, get groceries, get other foot things, have fun. You're not going out for like a little joy ride normally. <laughs> it's very different from the Midwest. Let's put that out that way. <laughs> he had gotten off work at 6:30 a.m. Dear Lord, and he was driving through Camp Sherman and he was planning to hunt coyotes as you do. Um, he passed the runner and that was it. They were like, okay, we're gonna focus on the <laughs> husband because normally. That's who does it because she had disappeared and she had two affairs at the time, which damn girl, that's that's a lot of work. I'm going to refrain from comment on that one. A lot of coordinating three men in your life, plus a job, plus running. God, how do you find the time? (laughs) Disturbingly, the next day after Christmas, so Boxing Day, two experienced trackers who had been part of the search discovered um, some tracks of two sets of footprints preserved in the frozen ground. Because remember, Oregon, winter, cold, mountains. Um, One of them resembled Kay's Nikes, and they were with another set that appeared to have belonged to a large man. There was indication of a scuffle and looked like the large person was dragging a smaller person away. Let's get ready for our second marker of rage. Local police did not put much stock in the tracker's findings. They were told to drop it. We all full of rage yet? And that's, you know, with the with, with local police, that's really not that uncommon as well. I've been working, I worked on a podcast episode not long ago uh, where I had family members 
uh, reach out to me and tell me, I know this is the person that did this. He's bragged, you know, he's bragged about doing it, etc. And when I've, I've personally reached out to the police force, uh, they basically have told me point blank. Yeah, we're not looking into it. You know, it's, you know, it's just not on our priority list. And that's just the end of it. I should mention, have you heard of the case where there was those two, um, it was either two girls from Harvard or Yale and they were traveling cross country and someone like attacked their camp with a hatchet in Oregon? No, I haven't heard of that. My favorite murder covers it in like, it's very upsetting. This is a year after that as well. So that was the big fear is like, is there another madman on the loose? Is it the same person? So, but after the police ignore that, eight months later in August, Eckroyd walks into the camp chairman's store and he looks very concerning. And he announced that he had found Kay's remains in the woods nearby while hunting rabbits with his dog. Um, and I enjoyed this. It was not a likely choice area for spotting rabbits, but he was there hunting rabbits, as you do. I've never... Guess he was out of coyotes. I know. Just go through all the animals. This is when you want a cougar to find him. Um, the shopkeeper, uh, Christine Weston, recognized him because he had been in half a dozen times since Kay had gone missing. One specific visit stood out because she had discovered him fondling himself while looking at a porno in the store and she had gone to get her husband because there's some dude touching himself in the store and he had fled. So again, gem of a person. Sounds like a real social butterfly. I know. And then he'd said, this is the, so he comes in and goes, I found the body. He tells them, quote, I'm in real trouble. I was the last one to see her alive. End quote. Why would you say that? So he leads the investigators into the brush about half mile off the road from where <laughs> Kay had gone, uh, running and he kept telling the Oregon State Police Trooper Clayton Durr in 1979 why did I have to find her well probably because you murdered her but okay they were kind of confused on how he determined that it was Kay because there were bits of clothes and bone it looks like trash and animal carcasses so how is that Kay he's just he's just putting himself in there so much um they spent another week looking for her remains. They found her lower jawbone and yellow short, some scrap from her pullover, her underwear, remnants from one of her Nikes. They found the other sneaker and her gold Timex watch, and it actually stopped on the time that she was murdered. Do you want to guess how long into her run? Oh, wow. Hmm. I mean, 40 minutes? Um, a little longer. It stopped at... 9.27 a.m., so about an hour or so into the run. Creepily, um, one of the state troopers rested against a, a tree, and he looked upwards, and he discovered there was a bird's nest. Something was tangled in the twigs and sticks. Kay's blonde hair. So did she try to climb up the tree? No, the birds, uh, birds like hair for their nests because it's good to weave in there. So they had... Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes That's something that'll haunt your dreams now. Oh, that's pretty crazy. So guess who's the number one suspect? Mr. Aykroyd. Uh, oh, so he actually showed up on their uh, compass there this time. Yeah, mainly because he found the body and they were like, how did you know this was a body? It doesn't look like a body. Like, huh, like you. 
anyone who walks in the wood and woods and stuff wouldn't be like, oh, maybe it's some trash. I found some weird things in the woods for work, things that will haunt me. But that's besides the point. When you have to clean up the things people throw off the path, it sucks. Let's put it that <laughs> way. Um, really, a lot of dog poop bags. Just carry oh, them with awful. you. Just carry them with you. There's a garbage can somewhere. You have the dog. Or at that point, why yeah. even put it in a bag? I digress. That's just adding plastic. I know. So many. All colors. So now, Ackroyd admit, admits that he had stopped and talked with Kay. So he's already changed his story. He keeps adding incriminating details. The best one is, he's like, no, I had seen her body two months after her disappearance, but I didn't think about calling the cops. Really? You didn't? Okay. Um, he said it was in the area where her body, the bones and the bits of clothing were found. Her breast had been punctured by a bullet and her throat was slashed. And he reached down to touch the slain woman's arm and hair. Why? Why would you do that? And basically, what does this look like, Justin? What do you mean? What do you think? Like, if he's coming, he's like, I found it two months, two months after she disappeared. Like, well, considering uh, the last few police officers uh, are the last few investigators, they seem to just brush it off. Who knows what they thought this time? No, doesn't it seem like a like Bundy? Didn't he say he used to go back and like visit? He's like visiting her. Oh, yeah, no, that's that's absolutely common. You you see that all the time. Yeah. Revisiting the scene of the crime. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 classic behavior, you know, and if they're not, you know, co- collecting items from their victims. Well, they've I think they said they only really found her skull, but they found like the skull and the mandible separated because, you know, animals think that's fun. Well, you know, um, another person that used to revisit the scene of the crime, Gary Ridgway, uh, they would find, you know, the bodies sometimes my like the body parts sometimes miles away from each other because what Gary would do is he would return and he would intentionally, uh, you know, misplace different body parts, uh, you know, from where they were murdered and just kind of scatter them across the woods to make it harder on investigators. So, you know, it's it's really yeah, it can be animals and sometimes it can just be, you know, whatever the hell's going on in their head. The asshole. And let me tell you, those woods, I've hiked in some of them. It's, I mean, it's easy to get lost. I sometimes regret it because I was always by myself going hiking because cougars, bears, forgot about the bears before I moved out there, but that's besides the point. (laughs) So on top of it, Ackroyd goes, I wasn't alone on Christmas Eve morning. So yeah, Someone else was there and didn't say shit. Good old cup of rage right now. So he was with his friend and hunting companion, Roger Dale Beck. They said they hunted coyotes, but later changed their story to say they were poaching deer. You know, pick one. One crime for another. I think people give less fucks about killing coyotes. I do. But that's just because it's feel like attack dogs and stuff. Deer are just horrible when you hit them with your car. So, yeah, like you said, Ackroyd is kind of a stereotypical serial killer, like, or murderer. He's placing himself in the crime, like, scene area. He's putting himself in the investigation. He's clearly gone back and visited the crime scene. But because of how much time has passed, there's no physical evidence. So, and he's like, I'm innocent, guys. I had only seen her that morning and found her remains. How weird. How weird. So the detectives uh, really feel 
like it's BS, but what are they going to do? Time passes and it stalls out. So in 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 what what year what like around what decade was this? Late 70s. So we he started in 77 that we know of and they found Kay's body in 79. It also just seemed so much easier to get away with this stuff at that time. Like when you look at the charts and you look at the amount of like active serial killers, uh, you know, in comparison to today, I mean, a lot of it had to have been that they were just, you know, having open season because, you know, the fact that they weren't, you know, taking a look at this guy, uh, this guy's past and his relation to his other potential crime. It's just mind blowing to me. I think it's also it's small rural communities in Oregon, like, and at that point, they're not talking a lot, so it's easier to get away with shit. Yeah, less databases kind of linking the various potential crimes. Yeah, so he continues working for the state, and he marries a woman named... Where is it? Um, no, I hit my computer. Um, he marries a woman named Linda, and li- they live with her young kids, uh, Byron and Rashanda. Meanwhile, his... Uh, co-conspirator back left Oregon. He was convicted of a sex crime in Minnesota and served seven months in prison and then moved to California. Yay! Great. And what level of a sex crime did he commit to only get uh, seven months? I'm assuming it was probably, sounds bad, rape, but think about it, it's the late 70s, you're not getting that much. Yeah. No, I mean, they still get a tap on the wrist sometimes nowadays. So his next victim was Rashonda Pickle from, uh, Santam Junction in 1990. So this is when she was 13 and her stepfather had a very quick temper and his name was John Aykroyd. Yeah. Oh, wow. And is that a, is that a coincidence or any relation? Um, no, that is the John Aykroyd we've been discussing. He just married her mother. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No, he, he just married, he married her mother. So it's like they had a different father. And Aykroyd was basically very physically abusive. They interview um, in the documentary series, they interview Byron and he really like and her friends. And it's not a pretty picture that they paint about John. So coincidence. Yeah, the, the way that it was framed, I was like, wow, that's an amazing. That's an amazing coincidence. <laughs> Two John Aykroyds. I barely know one. Yeah. So this is basically where the State Highway Division compound was at Santum Junction. It's where uh, US-20 and Oregon-22 meet. So basically right along John's hunting grounds. So in the, the work crews called the Junction Home, there were... Uh, couple kids that live there so the his john's relationship with rashonda's mother linda was really interesting because they had married in the mid-90s but divorced the year later still living together raising linda's two kids rashonda was the younger one of the two she was a good kid helping around the house not really going too far she would ride her bike took the bus uh to school she listened to Debbie Gibson and Wilson Phillips and um, got along great with her brother, who was really her protector. Her family called her Channy. Don't know why, but that's what they did. Then there was a shift when she reached fifth grade. She seemed withdrawn and tired, and she seemed to dread when school ended. What do you think is happening, Justin? If you could guess. Well, I can imagine what's happening considering her stepfather. Yeah. Get ready to refill that cup of rage. So... She confided in two girls who were sisters who she was friends with. 
She was terrified of returning home alone. She would always be like, can I stay over? Can I stay over? Can I stay over? Um, And these girls, the reason why she confided with them is they were uh, survivors of sexual assault and molestation. And they knew that Aykroyd was at least molesting Rashonda, if not going further. So really what strikes uh, the tinder in this situation is Rashonda and Byron went to stay with their biological father and he figured out what was up and he was planning to fight for his kids. And he told Linda, Linda told John. Can you imagine how happy John was about that? I can't imagine very happy. No, he seems like a someone who could handle this stuff well, on the morning of July uh, 10th, 1990, Rashonda woke early to help her mom get ready for the day. Um, and, like, Linda and John left for work, and leaving Rashonda with a list of chores. And they weren't expected back till that afternoon. So they left probably pretty early. And, you know, stereotypical chores. But John came back early. And Rashonda was never seen again. Yeah. That's horrible. It's, like, it's going to sound bad. It's a great way to get rid of evidence, I guess. Yeah. And you want to hear a story that he told everyone? What do you say this time? He said he dropped Linda off at the resort and continued on east on Highway 20 to the state maintenance shop in uh, Bend, Oregon. He planned to fix snowplows, but then decided to take the day off after learning the parts hadn't arrived. A claim that baffled his supervisor who was like um we got plenty of shit to do so instead he returned home to find his stepdaughter on under a blanket on the couch she was watching tv he was like i'm gonna go for a drive to photograph some deer on the back roads who photographs deer i don't know i've lived in the country no one wants to photograph deer just a thought plus what is it with this guy and deer um easy excuse (laughs) um i should mention these are black-tailed deer of the Pacific Northwest, not white-tailed deer like the Midwest and the East Coast are used to. I had to learn about them. Fun facts. Um, and Rashonda was like, no, I got to finish my chores. And he says he left. And when he returns a couple hours later, she's gone. How weird. So on top of that, he really didn't look for her and then picked up Linda from work. When they pulled into home and Rashonda wasn't there, um, you know, her mom's like, well, her... All her stuff is still here, but the chores aren't done. And she was very good about leaving notes to say where she had gone. So they ate. um, They had sex, which is really significant because they almost never had sex. So what turned on John? Hmm. That somehow makes it like that much worse. Oh, it's so much worse because she's like, he couldn't in the documentary. She's like, he couldn't keep his hands off me because, yeah, they interviewed Linda. Oh, I feel bad for Linda because she lost a child, but then she's in denial about a lot of things. I can imagine that'd be somewhat of a defense mechanism. She's like, where is she? Where is she? And he's like, I don't know, but you have to wait 24 hours to call the police. She's 13. No, you don't. But Linda, good old Linda, just happy for security of a man in in the 90s was like, okay. And they play the 911 call. I'm not a fan of really listening to 911 calls or playing them so i'm not going to but basically when she calls the dispatcher she the dispatcher was like um no children you don't have to wait 24 hours and they start going through the process of asking about rashonda where last person to see her all this stuff and the police come out accurate's not bothered that his stepdaughter's gone he was not panicky but he could know her weight and bra size 
but couldn't remember her birthday. Oh, wow. Weird. It's almost like he knew that for some specific reason. He also noted that he thought she was pretty and noticed she had begun to develop, which is creepy. Never tell a girl she's developing. It, it doesn't sound right. No, thank you. Yeah, the police were like, this dude's acting weird because he became sexually aroused when shown a pair of pants that the police had found in the woods and suspected belonged to Roshanda. And he loved the attention while he pretended to search for her. Just the fact that they were able to notice that he got sexually aroused when they showed him the pants. I mean, just, you know, imagining his behavior at that time is that's something else. He had a wet he had a wet stain in his pants. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I vomited a little bit when watching that documentary. So I was like, oh, God, why? That's that's even worse than I imagined. Yeah, yeah, no. Like, everyone who talks about him is like, 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 why? He began to speculate, like, about the harm that had come to Roshanda, like, echoing the, uh, the stories in Friday the 13th, Texas the Chainsaw Massacre, because he loved really gross horror movies where women were being chopped up. And it even made people who he invited over to watch movies get sick and leave, you know. And I can imagine it's it's more so probably how he was acting during them than so much, you know, the movies. Yeah, like if you watch it once, it's like whatever. But when he ke- he's like rewinding it and you're just like, I think this is a bit much. And he's like, no, we got to watch it again, really see the art of it. And then you're just like, are you are you are you hard? No, thank you. Okay, bye. We're not friends anymore. One too many wet stains. Exactly. He even mentioned, like like I said, investigators were troubled by his knowledge of her bra size. I don't think most men know women's bra size. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that troubled just about anyone. Yeah, like even if he knew his wife's bra size, because you're like, really? Most women don't know each other's bra sizes. They barely know their own. So, uh... (laughs) And then he also dwelled on the fact that she had gotten her period and things in the 90s that probably made the cops uncomfortable and were like, sir, no, please stop. On top of it, he said it was the girl's development that had drew a predator into the into the area. So just telling them, you know, his basically his own reasons, just giving them insight. It's like a poltergeist. You know, she's like she she's she's, you know, she's becoming a woman. So a demon came and took her. Really, John? You say an outside predator came and took her? You are? Okay. Seems creepily wrong, but okay. Ready for more horrible news? Go right ahead. (laughs) He wondered aloud. Quote, if Roshanda had been dumped and buried in the woods or threatened with a knife, tied up and gagged and her body rolled in plastic, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so familiar to his first victim, though. He threatened her with a knife. It's like he, he it's like he literally can't think of anything other than what he himself has done. And, and that's like the only thing he can give the police. Yeah, I know. It's. I mean, and then on top of it, he's just talking to the police for hours. There's tapes. This is why it took this woman two years to get through it, because he talked so much to police. Um, They basically just let him talk about it for hours with trying to hide how frustrated they were with Aykroyd. Uh, You know, he and he would tell them, quote, you know, both of you sitting there pointing your fingers at me and I didn't do nothing, end quote. They'd ask him, you didn't do anything to Kayleen Jean Turner? No. You didn't do anything to Channing? No. You didn't do anything to anybody else? No. Quote, no, what do you think I am? A sadistic killer who goes around killing people, taking girls off somewhere? I did not do nothing. At the wrong time, 
wrong place at the right time, end quote. And they're like, a bunch. And they're like, he's like, twice. Twice that we know of. Oh my god. It's just too coincidental. But again, at this period of time, there's no body. How do you how do you get them? So they go back uh, to Kayleen Turner and trying to figure out what's going on. So they actually get a breakthrough because the supervisor assigned a new a t- new detective McNulty McNulty to the um, to organize the press clippings from the early days of the investigation. You're like, this is kind of a rookie job, but he had only been promoted to detective ten days earlier, and he's like. Got it. And he's reading through the stories and all of that. But McNulty noticed that his hunting buddy, Beck, and his wife had lived in a trailer not far from Camp Sherman. Coincidence. And his wife and Pam, Beck's wife, was around when the men were in the trailer that morning and had helped give Ackroyd an alibi. But the couple had since divorced and Pam had moved back to California. Ex-wife, not the same as wife in the law and he was like hey boss you think i can go to california it's only 750 miles and uh talk to the ex-wife what do you think the boss said well i'm trying to think of the most absurd situation did they say yes oh my god yeah so i don't know what mcnulty did to convince his boss but he drove that 750 miles and i'm gonna guess depending on where he was located it is either straight five or down the 101, which either one takes a while. Beck's ex-wife was like, you know, I haven't talked to Ackroyd, but it's pretty fond. They had been friends since they were in childhood. Uh, she knew when she was 12, Ackroyd had actually initialed his, uh, tattooed his initials on her arm. And then grossly, two years later at 14, she married Beck. Yeah. But she gave them some good news. The men ordered her to lie to the police where they were that morning. And she said, I lied like hell. So, yay. Uh, the truth was, on Christmas Eve morning, Ackroyd showed up, the men ate, left poached to poach deer, and did not return until the next day, at which point their clothes were covered with so much blood she had to get rid of Beck's jeans and t-shirt. Later, they told her that they had mistaken Kay for a deer and fatally shot her. She just lied to the police. And did she, did she help cover up? Just, like, blatantly lied? Yeah. So they, she just said that they were there. Um, and then she found out more, um... She found out that Kay had been raped and shot because Beck told Pam, um, basically threatening her probably when the marriage wasn't going well, he was going to do to her exactly what they did to Kay Turner. Yeah. Gem of people. Gem of people. They're slowly working their way to Ackroyd, and he had returned to Sweet Home, his hometown, to live with his mother after he split for good with Linda. Good for you, Linda. He had transferred out of Sinem Junction where he had been working because of, you know, his stepdaughter going missing and everyone thinking he did it. And he was making women uncomfortable. He worked out of Corvallis and continued to work up and down Highway 20. But after he moved, he was uh, he spotted the daughter of his old friend while he was driving. And he was introduced to two young women that he knew. They were Melissa Sanders, age 17, from Sweet Home. And Sheila Swanson, 19, from nearby Lebanon. Uh, They were restless, broke, and basically just living the life of drinking too much and keeping dangerous company. They would be at uh, Sherry's in Lebanon, where basically teens and adults gathered to talk on CB radios and drink coffee, where Ackroyd also hung out. And he made a point to talk to Melissa and Sheila. So while he's becoming friends with Melissa and Sheila, everyone's 
who's working the Turner case is focusing on Aykroyd's shifting account and basically getting ready to arrest him. So our next and final victims, Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson in Newport, Oregon in 1992, the year I was born. <laughs> so so one moment, you, you, said, a, you said a second ago, I, I'm just trying to make sure I heard that right. That they hung out at this at this place and they drank coffee and talked over the CB radio. This was like a place that people hung out at. Yeah, it was just basically like a coffee shop that you could hang out late at night. And they had CB radios there for some reason. And so people would like hang out and talk to truckers and like that kind of stuff. Okay, so un- unironically, unironically, that sounds kind of amazing to me, actually. <laughs> just just like a place late at night to drink coffee and talk to truckers on CB radio. Like, I, I would be so into that. Like, that actually sounds kind of amazing. Right? Think about it. sounds great. Especially because think about for truckers, it's got to be amazing to have someone to talk to if you're driving late. Well, you know, I was, I was looking into trucking at one point, And uh, whenever I look into, you know, something, I tend to do a deep dive. And of course, that, that ended up with me looking into, you know, CB radio and truckers. And apparently that era is over. Like they all use their, it makes sense when you think about it. They all use their cell phones. They're listening to audiobooks. They're, you know, listening to podcasts. Yeah. Exactly. They are. And so, you know, they, they have ways to keep themselves, you know, busy. So apparently the CB radio era is kind of gone. So that made me a little sad. Dun, dun. Yeah, I know. This is, it's, it's just sad because I've driven through Newport and it's amazing. It's a nice little beach town. And then like, the fact that they were there and they had like this their cool coffee bar that they went to and they're like, well, let's go. So they they were in, um, I believe it's in Lebanon and they wanted to go to the beach, which the beach in Oregon is not warm. But who doesn't? I can it? imagine. <laughs> um, I'm assuming it's slightly warmer than the ocean in Washington, which was a in the 50s maybe 60s all year so i'm gonna guess it's like maybe 60 um so they go out they make their trip to beverly beach state park which fun fact all the beaches in oregon are state owned and are public useless fact that my friend gave me you're welcome for that gem shout out to my old coworker johnny for telling me this so what does that mean does that mean that you know people can't live on them yeah so if you buy a house and there's a beach that's not your beach all the beaches are state owned. Yeah, that's that's pretty nice. I think there's an issue in Florida they're having with that, where there's a lot of legal issues with that. Yeah, my coworker went to visit all the lighthouses in the state of Oregon. He did it. I called him <laughs> a nerd. <laughs> but so they head out to the coast, which I'm not gonna lie, it's beautiful out there. But they grew bored. And they wanted their boyfriends to pick them up. And they call them from a payphone, a.k.a. the 90s. And yeah. their boyfriends were like, uh, no, we're not going to come pick you up. So they're like, we're going to hitchhike. They had met only six months. The girls had met only six months earlier. And they had both shared a history infused with drugs and alcohol. Scrappy, streetwise high school dropouts. Both with some uh, turbulent, like, past. And they really bonded over evenings at Sherry's restaurants where they had hung around. And that's where they had met John. Sound like some pretty cool people to hang out with, to be honest. I know, right? So um, they really didn't know about John's background when they had met him. Where 
Sheila was the older of the two. She seemed younger, and she <laughs> just love this. She wore a leather black leather jacket that her parents had paid for on installments where Melissa was the tough talking independent one and she really had just dragged Sheila along with her on her family vacation to Newport. They her parents had woken up to find the two women gone with their tent empty and they assumed they had gotten a ride home from friends. But a week later, neither were in sweet home. Melissa wasn't there. His father waited a couple her father waited a couple more days before calling the police. Later the FBI. They reached out to the police in Lebanon and Sheila wasn't there either. Um, and mind you, like, even though it's rural Oregon, like, now I know at least the cops really, they talk to each other. They're all in the same radio, like, basically radio system. So if State Highway Patrol has something happening, like Park Rangers now, the local police now, <laughs> they're all helping each other out. I don't know if this is what it was like in the 90s, but I know from working in Washington, that's how Washington runs, and Washington and Oregon are very similar, and they're functioning that way. I can imagine that, yeah, you saw a lot of changes by the 90s because, you know, if you take your time and you look into, like, murder rate, uh, 70s and 80s, you know, are it's it's off the charts. And then by, by the 90s, I think it's a mixture of, uh, you know, police becoming more effective and then public awareness as well, because you mentioned it before, but I mean, people used to just hitchhike left and right and just fall asleep in people's cars when they're hitchhiking and everything else. And I think shows like unsolved mysteries kind of told people like, look, you're, you have a right to do whatever you want. You know, it's your right. And you, you should be able to do what you want. You know, it's not your fault, but the reality of it is, is that there are some very bad men out there and they're willing to take advantage of you. And it's it and these and I think a lot of that public awareness helped quite a lot. Yeah. And the sad thing is, like, if you think about it, hitchhiking is a dangerous yes. But then again, we have Uber, which is alertive hitchhiking. <laughs> we summon someone in our car. At, at least at least in the case of that, you know, you, you know, you're pretty much setting up like you know, an Uber driver isn't going to get a, like they're not going to get away with killing you. I mean, yes, you're still you could still get in the vehicle of someone that's having like a psychotic break, sure. But uh, you know, if there's someone that wanting to get away with killing someone, you know, Uber's not the way to go because there there's the trail for the police to catch them. You know, right away in the '70s and '80s. I mean, just getting into the you know, any old beat up pickup or, you know, any old truck driver, you know, any old truck driver's truck. It was just a complete gamble with no, with no trail at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I used to, I used to hitchhike a lot as a teenager and this was before I had a cell phone. So, I mean, I'm, I'm completely guilty of it. I think the worst I've ever done, I never hitchhike, but I've ridden in the back of a minivan in the trunk. That's probably the worst for that. Oh, my dad used to let us ride in the back of the truck. Oh, and it was like a friend's, it was like a friend's minivan? Yeah, we did carpooling for a swim team, so like, there were too many people in the car, and mind you, this was a, probably not the mom you wanted to drive you when there's too many people in the car, because um, we were going back roads through Cleveland, but it was really hilly and stuff, but my, my sister, as soon as she did it once, and she's like, you're never riding back there, you have to hold the, young. this is how bad it was, so there's like a minivan, you know, the, the two and the the three, and then there's two people in the back. But then people also were holding younger kids on their laps. That's, yeah, it was bad. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's funny about the holding 
younger people on their laps. I still unbelievably see that today in Florida. The only reason it was bad is because where I lived in Cleveland was really hilly. So like if something and like snowy. So if something happened, it was not going to end well. And this lady was a crazy driver. (laughs) Good thing I know no one in my family listens to this. (laughs) So um, around the time that the teens went missing, Marvin Laron had been working the grave night graveyard shift at the state highway patrol shop in sweet home which again is i don't know why i didn't mention it. it's a great name for a town where are you going sweet home um and that's where you know basically workers come in they park their personal cars get a state rig to go drive around so you're not putting all that miles on your car while laurent and a co-worker were sitting in their seats like talking about their plans for the night ahead they noticed that Ackroyd's truck was still parked outside and his work rig wasn't there which mean, meant he was working unusually late. Then they heard his truck pull into the yard. Weird, because, you know, if you're working, like, third shift, you're not expecting people to come in. And it turned out to be Ackroyd. He comes in, his shirt sleeves are rolled up, and his arms and hands were covered with dried blood. You want to guess the excuse? Uh, deer poaching. I mean, come on, this guy with deers, this is, like, the fourth time. Like, this guy could have gotten away with anything. He could have stolen you know, anything he wanted and just said it was deer poaching. Oh my God. Yeah. He said he ran into a deer. It was just a t-shirt. It was a deer, <laughs> not murder, just a deer. Yeah. He could, he could have been in like a human suit and said it was deer poaching. He could have been doing human centipede and said it was deer. Yeah. Um, he said, I ran into a deer. I had to cut him out to which Laurent asked him like, okay, where's the deer? Ackroyd. Great excuse. I threw the deer carcass into the brush. I'm sorry, you gutted him, then threw him into the brush? Just take the deer at that point. You've already beat the deer. (laughs) They were both like, okay, I guess. And they watched him wash up and leave for home. And they basically, everyone in the shop was like, Ackroyd's a bit weird. He said he killed a deer, but we never saw the deer. But... That was like the third that was like the third time this month. I know. He keeps hitting these deer and getting all bloody but not taking the deer. Who's to say? <laughs> um then in the fall, they hear that hunters found the bodies of two young women who had vanished during a camping trip on the coast in the woods. They had been dumped off the highway along Ackroyd's route from the coast to Sweet Home. Coincidence? Probably not. Um, yeah. It was not a deer, sadly. So Sheila's ankles were bound by her leggings. Her sneakers and socks were still on her feet. Poor lady. They discovered a uh, used rivet near her body um, because the investigators suspected that this rivet was a link to her killer, which was a quick fix in field repairs, had fallen out of the pocket of her attacker. Melissa's body, unfortunately, was nude and had been dragged away by animals. They had been strangled, but again, they had been so far decomposed at that point. And Laurent was like, light bulb. He came back late that night, covered in blood, but... Only weeks after the teens had disappeared, Ackroyd had been arrested for case murder and booked into the Jefferson County Jail in Madras. I think I pronounced that the Portuguese way, but who's to say? Um, uh, and the detectives were like, um, did he kill any more before we caught him? But of course, Ackroyd had been telling friends about the missing teens. They assume it's me. Stop telling people that. Keep telling him it's a deer. That, that, that was his grand mistake. He he didn't stick to the deer defense, which is, you know, everyone knows is ironclad. Ironclad deer defense. It was a deer. I've hit I've hit several deer. It is terrifying. And they are very large. I don't recommend it. It fucks up your car. <laughs> Except for, 
I will I will give an endorsement to one car that it did not fuck up was my Chevy Venture. It just took off the license plate and my father was very impressed. <laughs> yeah, I've told my wife wife that she's lived in uh Florida, you know, her entire life and I've had to explain to her in the past that Hitting d- deer is a very, you know, real reality for a large portion of the country. And like how, you know, people down here, they view them, you know, like Bambi or whatever, but they can be such a pain in other states. I have almost hit three different types of deer because <laughs> <laughs> I've driven so much. Which you asked me, you're like, what time zone are you in now? And I was like, I'm in Eastern for right now. Who's to say in like a year? I could move again. We don't know. Yeah, what is I've I've hit white-tailed deer. I've almost hit black-tailed deer and I've almost hit a mule deer. Actually no, my friend was driving so I didn't almost hit it. My friend almost hit a mule deer in my car, but that was in Utah. So, they're all very large and really would fuck up your car. Life lesson, don't hit deer. On top of the police arresting Ackroyd for um Kay's murder, they are trying to connect him to Melissa and Sheila. Because they're missing, he knows them, they know that. They also know he's a motherfucker. So, they also have earlier police interrogations, hours of tape on uh, Kayleen Turner and Rashonda Pickle. But he was silent on Melissa and Sheila, probably because he knew he's fucked. They go, hey, can we interview him? And Ackroyd's lawyer goes, uh, that's a no. So, they look at his work truck, he would park... You know, he would drive around in his state rig and they brought up the point where he's like, hey, you showed up late once with your arms covered in blood, but still, again, no physical evidence because he washed off that blood. He said it was a deer. It's the deer defense. Ironclad. Ironclad deer defense. <laughs> um, on top of that, like like I said, the teens had built up a, like a varied circle of people in their lives. So there was plenty of violent young men to consider who murdered them, which is terrifying because Melissa apparently stole some glassware from a local meth cook again who's to say and it would take two decades to uh figure it out in which time Sheila's parents would have died and hit her younger brother had to carry on trying to figure out Melissa's mother had died um and this is kind of touching her well Melissa's father Richard Sanders kept her jewelry box which looked like a miniature china cabinet with him in his his home in sweet sweet home um so between 1984 through 1995 five teens had actually disappeared on or around the highways in lincoln county so it wasn't just them and the local district attorney decided to reopen their cases in 2012 to identify potential suspects so this falls to ron benson the investigator for the district attorney and Linda Snow, a retired legal assistant. So they have to go through all the old files on top of the mountains of clues, and they located the woman who had introduced Melissa and Sheila to Ackroyd, and she remembers telling them stories and that the women were comfortable with him enough to climb into her truck. What I didn't tell you about the fun things when they were at Cherry's Coffee Bar and CB Radio thing is... They had, um, from the documentary, they talk about the interesting nickname that they had for Ackroyd. You want to guess the nickname? Uh, the Deer Hunter? No. The Perv! Oh, okay. That works, too. <laughs> yeah, because they all kind of knew he was a perv, which, uh, just, why would you get in the car with him? 
I'm sorry. Then again, I've done some stupid things, but I always have a backup plan. It's called having a toolbox in your car, ladies. Do it. It's a life choice. <laughs> uh, actually, that was my father's decision. He gave me two toolboxes. But, um, and really, they had found out from other people who hung out at Sherry's that Aykroyd really didn't start hanging out there until he had met Sheila and Melissa. So creepy. He had, he found out that they were going to Newport and he said, I'm going to host a party because I have a house there. Come on down. It'll be right by the campgrounds, which is fair. There are a lot of campgrounds in Oregon and Washington. They're pretty close to major towns, but still, that's a big note from me. And uh, some workers had told the investigators that they had seen Aykroyd around the highway project uh, near the gravel logging road off of Highway 20, and it wasn't that far from where they found their remains. But Aykroyd was spotted there three times, at least after they went missing, so good to know he's continuing to visit the bodies. On top of that, when they were going through the evidence found when the when they had discovered the bodies, they found the rivet and the beaded seat cushion bead that had been used um, in cars and trucks at that time. So they are talking to the highway workers, you know, if you work for a state agency and you're in a certain area, you tend to know most people you work with. I have worked with a state agency. You tend to know most people in your area, if not by sight, by which car they drive, like around the area and stuff like that. And they were like, you know what? We we carry these rivets all the time. It's like probably the one that someone buys in bulk and you just grab a couple and go on. So they could have been in Ackroyd's rig. Um, and as for the seat cover, um, most workers use them to keep cool in the summer months. If you're driving between the coast and the center, it's cool on the coast and it's hot in the center part of the state. I feel like you don't see those uh, beaded seat covers too much anymore. If I see them anymore, it's usually like an older lady. But other than that, I don't really see beaded seat covers. Do you think it's people who drive a lot? Because, you know, you're sitting a lot in your car and they kind of massage your back. I've never had one. You know, thinking about it now, I've never, I don't think I've ever sat in a beaded seat cover. I don't think I have either. I'm trying to think. I know I've never really sat with seat covers. Then again, I've never actually picked my own car, so my parents don't have seat covers. My sister, the only covers I have for my car are for dogs, so that's not fair to judge. <laughs> there, okay, so we have the rivet that was probably state-issued, you know, like that's just what the kind the state bought. And then a lot of state employees had the beaded seat covers, so it could be in his car. Then they did a murder board, which is my favorite thing. So they got a big whiteboard, and they're like, we're going to connect... We're going to pull a Charlie Day. We're going to have a crazy conspiracy theory whiteboard to John Aykroyd. Let's go. And after four years, Snow and Benson had actually brought enough evidence to take the double mur murder to the grand jury. You ready for this theory? Does it involve deer? It does not involve deer. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa and Sheila had waited until dawn to leave their family's campsite. They had begun walking along the US 101, which is the highway that follows up and down the U.S. coast from Washington, actually from California all the way up into British Columbia. And they covered more than six miles till the Highway 20. Damn girls working it. Then turned east. They met Aykroyd, who was going to Newport for work that day. He had encountered the teen somewhere along the highway, offered them a lift like he had done previously, drove them up into a logging road and into the woods, um, and had murdered them. This makes his count up to known murders four. Mind you, that's 
known murders. Yeah, considering how long he was active, that seems way too low. Yes, it does. So, 1993, we're reading John's life story in Madras, Oregon. So, in 1993, he sat calmly in a courtroom in uh, downtown Madras about an hour's drive from where Kay disappeared. He, they know he was an opportunist who preyed on women for more than... And he had worked for more than a decade in the st- as a state mechanic along Highway 20 from the Cascade foothills to the coast. You know, Kay's mother attended. Her father, um, who was shattered by the loss of his only child, didn't actually live long enough to see this case concluded. The jurors are attentively writing their notes. Ackroyd refused to testify, but they did get to hear about the forensic testing on Kay's clothes, clothing, which had shown that she'd been shot and stabbed. And prosecutors also determined that she had been raped. They had a witness who was a young woman who was also running that day in Cape Sherman. Um, but the runner, J.A. Morris, had had an earlier brush with Ackroyd as well, months, be- months before Kate had gone missing. She was 24 then, on her bicycle, headed home from her waitressing job, and noticed that Ackroyd had been standing near his pickup along the road in Camp Sherman. He then turned and pointed his handgun at her and ordered her to stop. Jane... Oh, yeah, man. Jane bravely crouched over her handlebars and sped away, zigzagging, unlike Bran Stark, towards the country store. You, you know, I've told my I've told my wife that when you look into the, you see that a lot. I've told her like if you if you're ever at the bank and somebody points a gun at you and tells you to get out of the car, you just drive off. If he shoots you, I mean, whatever. But your chances of survival are just so much better to just get going. Because if, if they get a hold of you, if they get you out of the vehicle, yeah, that's it. Yeah, no, like, you're in a thousand ton vehicle, you can get away. You know, if you get shot, you're not gonna, like, don't let them take control. I drive a lot. I think about these things um, way too much. <laughs> but yeah, no, like, she did the exactly right thing. It was like, they enter, and the crazy thing is they interview her in this documentary, and she's like, I zigzag because I, I had heard that it's harder to hit hit you if you zigzag and i'm like you did the bravest thing you could think and she was like i was petrified that i was going to hear the truck behind me and she's in this courtroom facing uh jane's in this courtroom facing Ackroyd for the first time since that summer morning where he had almost shot her and she realizes how lucky she's so we have two people who have escaped him basically and as they're waiting as trial comes to a close Ackroyd, who's in cowboy boots jeans and a studded belt with john in silver letters, waits for the jury to come back. How long do you think they took? Actually, four hours? An hour. Well, think about it. They don't have a lot of physical evidence, so you got to debate a little bit more. Jane? Oh, man. I, I went too low. I, I hoped... Uh, I forgot her name, but uh, the woman who zig- zigzagged, yeah. I hope in that moment when she was staring him down, I hope she felt a sense of you know pride and even power over him because, you know... I, I mean, I haven't heard the verdict yet, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume he was guilty. Yes, he was. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope that she felt, you know, she she defeated this yeah. man because I would assume that her testimony provided a lot of that evidence, you know, against him. Because, you know, that that's a pretty incredible story that and you don't hear that yeah. a lot in a lot of these true crime stories that. Not only did she evade him, but she stared him down like that. So even though he was guilty and we have other like collaborating like character witnesses who's like, no, this is the man who like tried to kill me. This is the man who like raped me. Um, 
they he would never admit what happened, so they don't actually know what happened to Kay that morning. But, you know, his buddy Beck, who was Aykroyd's alibi, another jury found Beck guilty in the murder of Kay's case, too. Because Beck, the dumbass that he is, bragged to family members about killing Kay, and they both received life sentences. <sighs> nice happy ending. They actually did reenactments, and I didn't want to go into this, of what they thought happened the morning of Kay's murder. And you can, I'll link to the documentary. Um, I'll share it on all the social medias for that. So you can figure, watch all of this and get your cup of rage refilled. On top of it, Kay and Rashonda never really got their ending because they don't know what happened to them. And Aykroyd never was charged in the case. But, you know, everyone didn't really think that his story about inviting her to go photograph wildlife made sense. And he really seemed to relish in the speculation of the horrible things that happened to her. Well, Mike Harmon, who is a investigator for Lynn County Sheriff's Office, was really concerned that Aykroyd might get a shot of parole. So the smart man he was, he arranged to meet with Aykroyd at Oregon's Maximum Security Prison in Salem, which is the uh, capital in the fall of 2012. So we've made it from 1977 to 2012. Covered a lot of time. And, you know, he's just trying to figure out if Aykroyd's coming up for parole. He's got diabetes, a bad heart. He's like, I'm going to be a burden on my family as if your family will take you. So he's bringing the, Harmon's bringing the conversation back to Rashonda and, you know, he's taking out pictures from the ritual police style. Aykroyd's now 63. And he goes over the same timeline, lying his ass off. And, you know, Harmon tries to, like, be like, you can go home for Thanksgiving. We can organize a visit or something. Doesn't work. So he comes back for a second time. And he tells Aykroyd, quote, I work for Shani. Something bad happened to her. The prosecution uh, is going to pro- progress on this. End quote. Aykroyd's still not willing to talk he's claiming he's innocent he's gonna keep talking about it till he dies so he Harmon goes back to his office and thinks about all the cases that are unsolved from the 1970s on bodies or clothes of women and one young man found in the wilderness of Lynn County off of Highway 20 there are two Jane Doe's um and another young woman from Lebanon, Elizabeth Musler, who disappeared when she was 22 and discovered in a shallow grave. Two more teens disappeared, but their bodies never turned up. Then Karen Lee and Rodney Grissom, 15 and 14 respectively, were friends. They ran away from home and planned to go to California. They sent their last call in the spring of 1977 from a payphone in Lebanon. Sadly, later, Karen's jeans, um, some pages from her journal, and the blouse she had sewn for a school project were found off a logging road. Her jeans had appeared to be cut, similar to Aykroyd's two earlier assaults, Marlene Gabrielson's and Kayleen's Turner's. Meanwhile, Karen's mother, Violet Gilmore, believed that Aykroyd was her daughter's killer. She knew that about the abduction of Kayleen Turner... She also knew he was from Sweet Home, and it was not far from where uh, Karen had called a friend one year before Kayleen Turner had died. So, all these cases were all but forgotten. No physical evidence had been found to link Aykroyd to any of them, but their timing and proximity to Highway 20 had prompted investigators to wonder, could it be Aykroyd? So, Hammond takes another shot. He's like, what about the other ones? Aykroyd denies, denies, denies. He's like, you're trying to pin these on me. He were... First, to Rashonda, thinking maybe he'll tell her where the body's at, him where the body's at. And he says, quote, so you don't know where she's at? 
Is that what you're saying? End quote. Aykroyd refuses and leaves and returns to his cell. Only a few months later, in 2013, Lynn County District Prosecutor took Rashonda's case to the grand prosecutors. They don't have a body. They don't have any physical evidence. And but they're worried about the parole um, of Aykroyd because he's still considered a danger. Think about how much damage he's done. We only we only know of four, yeah. but there's probably at least. at least 10 that you can think of. They had concluded that Rashad was dead and they had a Forest Service Rangers account of seeing Aykroyd that day in a snow park near Santum Junction. Hours later than Aykroyd claimed that had exploded his alibi. On top of it, they had her friends saying that Aykroyd had sexually been abu- had sexually abused her before she had va- vanished. Um, but who else could have done it, you know? So what do you think the grand jury returned with? I'm going to hope guilty. An indictment on a single count, murder. And he pleaded no contest. He wouldn't admit to killing her. He wouldn't say no. But he agreed to never seek parole. Which, I mean, in this case... That's all you can hope for. So, unfortunately, um, he never gave up where her body was. We still don't know. A a lot of these guys, I mean, even if they have the death penalty, they'll just take it to them. They'll just take it with them to their grave. Uh, You know, like like, um, Oba Chandler. You know, he had more victims and they, they were finding him, you know, after he was already sentenced to death. But he just would never, you know, give them up for whatever reason. They just didn't want to admit just how awful they were. I think in this case, it's his one thing he has over her still, you know, and it. I, w- I always wonder about that. I always wonder if it's like, is this a is this, you know, power for them? Or is this some type of, you know, cognitive dissonance in which, you know, day to day to get through life, they just they try to distance themselves from like the monsters they are. Or is it? Yeah. Like you said, is it this thing where this is like, you know, his power over them? Does this sexually arouse him or whatever? Yeah. Uh, the worst thing I think is uh, Rashonda's mother didn't or father didn't come to this hearing. Only her brother did. And you hear from him talking about testifying, doing victim impact statements for it, too. And it, the most touching thing, he didn't really get closure, but he got this beautiful tattoo on his arm of Rashonda from uh, Family Pictures, which I'll be sharing, um, at least on Facebook. That's where I put all the pictures. But so because she was a minder a minor. Um, the judge sealed the court records and the Oregonian actually had to contest and have them open to conclude this ca- like document. And I'm glad they did. So they had built, a, the investigators had built a case for Ackroyd killing Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson. But because he had already agreed to never apply for parole and he had a life sentence, he was going to die in jail. They considered the case closed to save money. In late December, of uh i believe it was 2013 i lost track of my time in this but yeah 2013 in december Aykroyd was dead the cause heart disease i don't know if this makes you feel better but the state continued to pay his pension while he was in jail it was three thousand six hundred twenty four dollars monthly because he was a public employee oh, wow. um, and that was his pension he had stuffed himself full of food from the prison commissary um dozens of packages of processed meats and cheeses probably not dear candy bars and beans (laughs) but he was had chronic health problems so he didn't leave his cell much tellingly his confidants were a pair of child molesters serving long prison sentences 
So he died of his own gluttony. Yeah, basically his heart gave out. Um, and I think, and I really suggest you to watch the documentary, but dear listeners, but um, they end the documentary going back to Marlene Gabrielson and her story broke my heart just watching her tell it. But then at the end, Noelle Crombie wraps it up very nicely by saying, quote, victims of sexual assault often ask to remain anonymous, anonymous. They don't want the stigma and shame associated with these crimes. Marlene K. Gabrielson wants you to remember her name. She told the truth all along. It's 41 years too late, but she is finally believed, end quote. So whenever people ask you why victims of sexual assault don't come forward, she was humiliated and all of that. And her rapist killed at least four other women. So there's a reason why sexual assault victims, male or female, don't report. And it has a consequence. And I want you, if anything, to remember, and this is a heavier case, to remember Marlene Gabrielson. Remember that she tried to warn everyone. And I, you know, I had a bit of a rant at one of my recent episodes where basically I was talking about how there are certain large podcasters out there that they rail against, you know, supposed SJWs and keyboard warriors and people of that nature. And I you know, I basically said my opinion on that is, is that things have gotten so much better since people have been able to speak out so easily. You know, people have a platform in which they can say that, hey, this is wrong or this happened to me and it was wrong. And, you know, we're we're in this time where your voice can be louder than ever. And you have but you still have these people that try to silence that. And I mean, when you just look like when you just look back to you know, even like the 90s, the amount of like just awfulness that was going on where just these horrible acts were happening to people. And, you know, no. You could just look at the, the Supreme Court rape, like the rapists who get both of them got in. But if you look at the questions to their accusers, they're completely different. And I think what's happening is that there's a lot of societal progress that's happening right now. And it's moving at a, a breakneck speed compared to previous decades. Uh, and there are some people that just, they can't handle that. Like, they want to exist in what's essentially the old world where, you know, hey, you know, it was one big frat party. And if you were in the club, you know, you were fine. But, you know, if you were an outsider or if you were a lesser victim, then, hey, you're not in the club, so we don't care, you know, and you were ostracized and made fun of. And if you were a rape victim, they just, they didn't care. And yeah, you know, there's a lot of people that don't like these changes that are happening, but I think it's long, long, long overdue. And it's very interesting that it just so happens to be happening in a time where, you know, hey, even you, you, you know, poor, no matter, no matter what race you are, no matter what gender you are, your voice is just as loud as anyone else's. I think it's fantastic, and I wanted to continue. So think about that as we move on to the next topic. I'm Justin. Do you want to do you want to do some plug in? Yeah, go for it. Okay, my show is Obscura, a true crime podcast. Uh, you know, we are similar to a lot of other big true crime podcasts out there that are produced with you know real audio and a narrative structure, but there are some distinctions. Uh, It's told in a very campfire style. There's an emphasis on respect for the victims. 
And if you're into that kind of thing, you know, check us out. You know, we have episodes that are 30 minutes long. We have episodes that are 90 minutes long. And uh, it does get graphic at times, though. You know, despite having that core philosophy of respecting the victims, there are some episodes that are rougher than others. But we try to warn in advance for that kind of thing. So, yeah, check out Obscura True Crime Podcast. It's amazing. I'm not going to lie. I listen every week. (laughs) Um, So we'll see you next week, devotees. And Justin will be telling his story, which (laughs) will be, I'm sure it'll be a doozy because you always find the best. I'm going to put best with quotes because it's true crime um, (laughs) topics. So we'll see you next week. Bye. Hello all, I'm Paul, creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I've been a crime buff for many years now, and my enthusiasm has led its way here. If you fancy each week delving into some obscure but in-depth and often disturbing true crime tales from the shores of the UK, plus you don't mind the northern accents and the down-to-earth manner, then why not come have a nosy? The show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. So it'd be great if you guys could come have a look-see and I hope you can subscribe today. I'd love you to join me and I look forward to seeing you there too. See if you can become enthusiastic about the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Thank you for listening to The Cult of Domesticity. We are available on all podcatchers. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at The Domestic Podcast and Instagram at The Cult of Domesticity. If you have a topic request, information, or want to send us a recipe, please email us at thedomesticpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share with all your friends. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.